Would you remain standing as we pray together? Father, this morning, we are so grateful, so thankful for the privilege we have. Help us to not take for granted the freedom in which we can come and worship you. Help us to not take for granted a community that has been formed through the sacrifice of Jesus. And so as we stand before you, people from different tribes and tongues, people that represent the cultures across this great globe, we are united in our thanksgiving for who you are and for what you've done. May you remind us by your spirit of who we are because of Jesus. And may we discern not only your word of truth for us as individuals, but for us as the people of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We will soon pray again, a corporate prayer of preparation for the word of God, but I just wanted to uh, share just with you, Pastor Ryan just alerted me that he heard from Pastor Jen that there was 40 kids registered for Children's Church this morning. That's uh, not including those who don't register. Some of them don't want to register. We don't know what the reasons are. <laughs> and uh, as he said that to me, I could see a little bit of anxiety in him because they are all coming your way <laughs> in a few years. Uh, in the spirit of not taking things for granted, isn't it wonderful? that here at Skyview we are trying our best to pass on a vital faith. We are not trying to entertain our children, though they can be entertaining. We are not trying to create a fun playground activity, though play is God-honoring. We're not trying to dismiss them from our presence because they are a nuisance, but because in an age-appropriate way we are trying to tell them of the great love of God. And so we have so much to be thankful for here, to be grateful for, for those who serve faithfully to lead our children and to teach them. To God be the glory. For those of you who are thinking about having children, this is a great place <laughs> to raise them. I say that jokingly, but it is true. Proverbial African uh, uh, proverb says it takes a village to raise a child. And I believe that to be true, that we need the church to help our children become whom God wants them to be. My preamble, but I'm going to invite you now to prepare your hearts for the reading of God's Word by praying a new prayer for this Lenten season. So would you join me in praying? O oh Lord, May the words of your mouth be our daily bread, and may the leading of your spirit become our way. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning's scripture comes from Genesis chapter 2, reading from verse 15 through 17, and then we'll go right into Genesis 3, reading from verse 1 through 7. By show of hands, when's the last time? Have you read the, the book of Genesis in the last month? Raise your hand. Oh, good. There's some of you here. 
interesting, complex book in many ways, but an interesting book, and a book that is often discarded in the corporate worship and life of the church. And yet, I want to suggest this to you, unless we know how the story of God begins, can we understand what went wrong and what God is trying to do? And so, in a simple way this morning, I'm going to invite you to listen to this story, at least a portion of it, with an attentiveness that perhaps challenges us to remember who God has made us to be and how God works to bring reconciliation and healing to a broken world. Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man You may freely eat of every tree of the garden. Let me repeat that. You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to a husband, and please note this, who was with her. They ate. Adam might be silent, but he is ever-present. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. The word of the Lord. Our text selection this morning deals with sin, a taboo subject, an uncomfortable subject. In fact, if I was to guess, most of us, when we heard me read the text, paid attention, if you hadn't, until... I read the portion that said, but of the tree of good and evil you shall not eat, and we are all drawn to that which we are not supposed to do in the text. Biblical scholar Christopher Wright, not to be confused with N.T. Wright, although both of them seem to be right. That's a theological joke. It's pretty good. (laughs) Anyway. I feel proud of myself for that one. Uh, Christopher Wright says it this way. He says, many Christians begin with Genesis chapter 3 and not what God has done in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. 
And because we don't begin with an understanding of what God has made and the good that He makes, do you know how many times after God creates this earth and creates man that He says these words, and it is good? Let me stress this to you. The word soteriology is a theological word that speaks to the doctrine of salvation. When we think about what it means to be saved, we do not truly understand the dimensions of God's saving work if we do not understand what God has put in place as gift to us from the beginning. Let me say it differently. If you begin with the fall without understanding what we've fallen from, you do not know what God is trying to restore. And if you begin in Genesis chapter 3, you may be convinced that salvation is just about me and my wrongdoing as opposed to a God that has sought to place us in His loving creation as caretakers so that as we become stewards of God's creation, that's where my name originates from, that we would honor God and live into His intended purpose. Some of you are not convinced. So I'm going to pull out some Hebrew words for you. Stay with me. The creation of Eden is a good thing. A garden filled with color, vibrancy, beauty, vitality, and abundance. Eden represents for us the ideal of what God has placed before us to enjoy. Nothing is lacking in Eden. All is provided. Not only is Eden sufficient in its provision for man, but Eden is not man's creation. God gives to man, the created man, the gift of sufficiency, of beauty, of abundance, of provision, and invites man to be a steward of all that he's given. To serve and to care for creation is important to understanding what sin is, for sin is often much more than we make it. I hope I can explain this, so stay with me. In chapter 2, verse 15, we read, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The Hebrew word for work is the word ibad. Say that with me, ibad. This word, its root meaning is to serve with the connotation that to serve is to do hard work but ultimately, the word implies this, that man has been given the responsibility to serve creation. The second word that is used in this text is the word samar. This is the word that means to keep something safe, to protect it, to care for it, and to be attentive to it. A literal translation of the Hebrew of chapter 2, verse 15, then reads something like this. 
Humans are given the responsibility to serve and to care for all that God has given them. I want to say to you that work, tilling, as the, the NRSV renders it, work, rendered elsewhere in other translations, are a part of what it means to honor God. It is not a punishment for the fall because it happens before the fall in Genesis 3. Therefore, let me say this, because we don't speak about this often, to do good work is to honor God. To work hard with the right integrity, with the right passion, with the right intention, to serve the purposes and to care for the creation and the responsibilities associated with it is to honor God. Therefore, Christians, this is not even my main point. <laughs> Stephen just knows when to say that because I never know what he's really saying. <laughs> In every aspect of our life, we are invited to honor God through the work we are called to do. I want you to think carefully about that. Because the duality of thought that often defines the theology of most of us is that God's work is not like the work we do. Let me put it differently. That somehow God is only concerned with the kinds of things that we can say are God honoring in certain contexts. But if the calling, the command, the instruction of God is to work well, to serve His purposes, and to care for His creation, then each and every one of us is responsible in the work that we've been given to honor and glorify God. Now, perhaps, you would say to me, I need to know more about that because I don't know what that looks like. It sounds like another sermon series or maybe a teaching series to explore the ways in which we can think about our work in terms of honoring and serving God, but for the sake of the sermon and the fact that I want to be brief so we can eat together, I will say this. Work is not a punishment, but it is an invitation to serve the living God. But here's where it's interesting. Most of us are drawn to the sin in chapter 3. And I'll make no beans about it. Sin is a serious problem. It is something that affects us more than we think it does. Sin is insidious. It does not only distort our view of ourselves and of God, but of creation. It also affects more than just us. And we live in a world in which we think that all we do only matters to us, therefore stay out of my business. Yet most of us sitting here today know this, that in many ways, the sin of this world has impacted our lives, has taken things from us, has distorted things for us, has broken things in us, and has created the anxiety and the fears associated with a world that is turning more consistently away from grace and God. So how do we approach the subject of sin? 
Ash Wednesday, which some of you attended, is a service that says to us, we must become honest about sin by confessing it. And I'm going to talk with you in a minute about that, but the start of the season of Lent is not a start that most of us would choose. We choose not to speak about the things that are wrong. And yet, unless we're able to face it, can we find the grace and the freedom and the liberation that only God can bring to help us to honor Him? God gives Adam and Eve all they need to thrive, and yet the Scripture shows us that they fixate on the one thing that they cannot have. It is interesting to me that in the consideration of sin, that this is often the way in which we are misled. We believe that the one things or the things or the boundaries or the rules of God are the things that keeps us, this is what the tempter does, from the real good things in life. And we forsake to see that in the retelling of this particular account of Scripture, that God has not spared anything in His provision for the people. He has placed them in a garden that is sufficient, that is bountiful, that has everything they need. And yet somehow when we read the text, in our own humanity, we feel the tension of not being able to have it all when what we have been given is enough. When we do not wrestle with the sufficiency of God, we start to listen to the voices that tells us that there is not sufficiency. And we act out of a sense of mistrust in the God who provides for each one of us. Now, let me put this for you in a corporate way, a corporate sense. Are you still with me? Did you say amen this morning? Uh, <laughs> when men and women stop caring for the creation God has given them, and they act as consumers and not stewards, there's an imbalance that happens in God's creation. There are many who do not have today. There are many who do not get what they need today. We talk a lot about personal sin, and it is important because sin begins with our personal lives. But let me say this to you and hear me very clearly. There is corporate sin, sin by which we are consumers to the point of depriving others from what they should have. The responsibility of Christians are to be discerning of the practices that makes them stewards and not consumers. People who think that where they get what they need, they must invest in so that others may have also. People who discern that the kind of work they do must be done in such a way that it does not only provide for them, but provides for the needs of the others. People who are discerning in their purchases, understanding that some people are subjugated and enslaved to produce the products that we consume, being responsible to care for this creation boils down to a, an accountability in every aspect of our life. I don't like the polarization in the church. The moment we speak about things like this, we are branded being liberal. We are branded having an agenda that is not Jesus-like. 
Let me make it very clear to you. At Skyview, we are pursuing to the best of our ability the whole counsel of God as revealed through all of His Scripture. And beginning with Genesis, we understand this, that He has given us all we need to flourish in this world, but when we forget that we are to be stewards, we commit not only personal sin, but the kind of sin that leads to haves and haves-nots. And sometimes, it is easier to keep sin local. To make everything we do just about me and God. You know, God has called us to a life that is difficult and challenging. Uh, and yet, the Scripture reminds us that God has provided in such a way that we participate in His plan. We are not just bystanders. We are not just inactive. Adam is instructed to care for the land. They are supposed to be involved in the work of God. Another way of saying this, they are invited to be co-stewards with God in His creation. To join God in the work of sustaining and providing. To be a part of the plan of God to renew and to replenish where replenishment and renewal is needed. But not only does God give Adam and Eve all they need and they fixate about what they can't have. By the way, I wonder, don't put up your hand, it's a rhetorical question. How many of you have that personality that if someone says to you, you can't have it, you want it all the more? There's one that's confessing honestly. Just tell me I can't have it, then I want it. Not because I really want it, but because you told me I can't have it. Let me, let, me just, let me just lean into this for a moment with you. I don't think it's right to be this simplistic with the text, because the text is a complex text. But I will say this. Isn't it fascinating how that what we see in the garden has been perpetuated throughout history? That people have acted out of a mentality that God cannot be trusted and that somehow He owes them more. You know who struggles with this the most? Those of us who have been through some rough stuff. People who have lost greatly, people who have suffered tremendously, oftentimes are tempted to turn to God and say, God, I think you owe me a little bit of a break. Can I get an amen? God, I think, I think I, I deserve a little bit more. Uh, you know, I can only bear witness to my own experience, and I, and I want you to understand, I want you to understand how difficult this is to preach, because I have to hear it first as a, as a listener of the Scripture. That often what stands in the way of the kind of life that I'm called to live is when I look at God as withholding instead of sufficient. And so, God provides all they need, and He sets a boundary in place. We may say, well, why a boundary? Why, 
you know, all these trees, and he says, don't have this one. Scholars offer many, many potential explanations, but I want to offer one that I think is theologically valid, not that the others are not. Is it possible that God says don't eat from this one tree after providing all the trees that they can eat from? So that whenever Adam and Eve saw that tree, they would be reminded of who the provider of all good things are. Boundaries in our life are not often understood as good things. But our diet will quickly tell us if we eat indiscriminately, our weight gain will be indiscriminate. The boundary that is good, that is set by God, in some ways conveys to Adam and Eve that there is someone who provided all that they are enjoying and invites them to trust that even if they may not have this one thing, that the good God has given them what they need. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says the serpent in this particular narrative, transform the good boundary of God by presenting it to them as something that is withholding good from them. The serpent transforms in the mind of Adam and Eve something that is meant for their good and convinces them that God is trying to keep them from greater good. To say it simply, the tempter makes the good seem bad, and we have drunk that syrup, that Kool-Aid, for a long time. The temptation is a temptation to not only ignore the provision of God, Believing that what he's given is not sufficient, it is a temptation to mistrust God, that somehow God is withholding that which is good from us. I have a good friend in Philadelphia. His name is Stretch. I didn't, I've known him for 20 years. I haven't learned his real name until about five years ago. This is one of those guys, I hope he listens to, he won't listen to my sermon. He, he. But Stretch is, is, is one of those, you know, just those characters that should have like his own TV show. You know, he's animated and always funny. And one day we were talking and he, he made this statement and I, I laughed so hard, but it's so true. He says, you know, the grass is always greener around the septic tank. <laughs> you come from a farm or a place where there is a septic tank, you know what I'm talking about. The allure of more and not enough might seem attractive. We might believe that on the other side of some things is what we are looking for. A psalmist says, but I still haven't found. Not Bono. <laughs> Bono quotes the psalmist. Just let me correct you, okay? He's not that good. <laughs> but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. 
You know, I, I wonder sometimes, my friends, if, if this table that represents sufficiency, you know, uh, I'm going to use this illustration. I used it with our leadership team yesterday. We had a leadership day together. I visited with uh, a, a Catholic priest as a part of my, my doctoral work. I had to interview people from different traditions, and, and then I interviewed him. I asked him, give me your perspectives on the Eucharist. You know what? Here's what he said. <laughs> he says, I... I want to get my people to eat on Jesus as much as possible so that they won't chew on each other. <laughs> if God is not enough, our hunger leads us to visiveness, selfishness, jealousy and the want of more. In the garden, when things go wrong, we start to blame others. In verses 12 and 13, which we didn't read, Adam goes, no, it's her. If you read the scripture carefully in verse 6, we know that Adam was there all along, complicit. And yet somehow, We've carried the same pattern with us throughout life. When things go wrong, it always is looking outward to others. We tend to forget that unless we are willing to begin with ourselves, can we access the grace of God. Let me say this clearly because this text has often been used to digitalize women, saying that they are the reason we have fallen. Let me say this very clearly. The choice is made by both Adam and Eve. And as sin progresses within their life, so does blame. Blame eventually gives way to shame. And the Scripture explains to us that they become Tailors, sewing together for themselves clothing that they didn't need until they became aware of their nakedness. Shame is a very, very significant theme in Scripture. Perhaps not spoken of enough. But what shame ultimately does, it keeps Adam and Eve from God, and the one that despite their sin is still pursuing them, makes me want to ask the question, what if Adam and Eve, instead of hiding, when God confronts them about their sin, turn to Him, knowing that throughout the Genesis account so far, the good reflects the good in God. That he is a good God, a gracious God, a God that according to Scripture is willing to forgive when we transgress. I wonder what would have happened if instead of hiding their shame, they trusted God with their brokenness, with their sin, with their vulnerability, and with their shortcoming. Romans 3, chapter 23 says this, 
for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all in need of God's grace and mercy. The pride that often floods our heart as we follow Jesus turns us away from the grace that we so often need. The blame of others instead of the accountability in me keeps me from the grace that not only pardons but transforms. The shame that I live my life with keeps me from the restoration and the healing that comes through the grace of God. And unless we are willing to recognize our own sin and where it begins, can we find the grace to live free from it? Who are you blaming? For your life, for your shortcomings, for your failures. There seems to be a movement that suggests we never take responsibility for our actions. Post whatever you want on social media. Speak your mind. This is what it means to be free and modern and smart. No accountability, no personal responsibility. Blame others. Blame your parents. Blame your spouse. Blame your friends. Blame the system. Blame the government. Blame anybody except looking at me. I close with this. Season of Lent and the scripture before us invites us to do three things. Instead of blaming others, to begin to take responsibility for our own actions. Two, instead of layering ourselves with shame, trusting that when we come before God and confess and repent from our sins, that he will truly forgive us. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, we read this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And three, instead of hiding when we feel convicted, we need to allow God to take our sin and redeem us so that we may be healed and restored. As the worship team comes and as our servers come, who are going to help me with communion this morning, it is apt that I say this to you. The communion table is an invitation to come and receive the sufficiency of Christ. It is to believe that what God has given us through His Son is enough. We come and receive, ironically, just a little cup and a little piece of bread. And we may be tempted to think that these symbols 
are not adequate representatives of who Jesus is. And in some ways, they are not. For nothing can quite be the lived person of Christ. However, through an act of faith as we eat these emblems, these symbols, we receive as an act of faith the fullness of God in Christ. Who says to us, come to me all who are thirsty and I will give you enough to drink. Come to me all who hunger, and I will satisfy your pain. Come to me, all that are in need, and I will meet you at your point of need. Father, as we prepare your people to receive this sacrament on the first day, first Sunday of a season of Lent, we ask that we would do so in the right posture. Let's not play around with sin. Let's not allow it to continue to distort our lives. But let us now in this moment confess to you all that we know we have done or have not done. And may we in faith fall upon your grace, inviting you to not only clear our conscience, but to renew our hope. And so, Father, as we come before you to receive this, the gifts of your grace, may we be filled with your joy. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Before Stephanie leads us, I read from Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, in his own words, preparing the community to receive. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said this, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he, he took the cup. And after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until his return.